But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth of the Gentiles should hear the word should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them, between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. You may be seated. Amen. Good morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm going to part of the teaching team, and I'm going to walk through this text with us here today. Uh, one of the hard things about marriage is that two family cultures have to come together, and that can create some serious, passionate clashes. For example, in my household, one of us uh, rolls the uh, toothpaste up from the bottom, and the other one is a savage who needs to learn how to become more civilized and squeezes it in the middle and stuff goes over the place and it's a problem. Um, and another example of this is this week. It's like 120 degrees and you know how like the car manufacturers aren't from Arizona because there's an option for max AC and then other bad options. There's no, why would you ever need medium AC? That's like the worst thing I've ever heard of. And one time I was in the car with my wife and she had it on like three out of five on the AC and I must have looked at her like she was this alien from outer space. I'm thinking, why on earth would you ever take it off max AC? You're a crazy person. And so it kind of led to this significant cultural clash within our, within our household. And, and so some people actually have really difficult times coming together, and so I don't want to minimize that. But, there's, but there can be real challenges navigating how my household did it, how your household did it. Now we're coming together, so what are we going to stand firm on? This is who I am, and I'm not going to compromise this, versus what am I just going to be willing to compromise and play fast and loose with? And that's kind of part of the difficulties of early marriage. And one of the things we see here in this text, and we've seen in the book of Acts, is it's very much like two households, two families, two cultures coming together. It's going to create problems. The Jews have been doing things this way for thousands of years. The Gentiles, the Greeks, have been doing things this way for thousands of years. And so when these two cultures come together, um, in order for them to be one new family, one new, one new household of God, there's going to need to be some give and take in different types of directions. And so one of the things we're going to look at here is what are those things that the Gentiles are expected of to give up and what are the things the Jews were expected of to give up. And so this passage, we just read verses 5 through 11, but I want to give you a summary of all that um, we're going to kind of have our minds wrapped around here. So first what happens in Acts 15 is there's this group of Jews within the church, they are believers, who come up and say, we need to require that these Gentiles, these Greeks becoming Christians, become circumcised. 
that they need to become Jews before they become Christians. We're glad that they're becoming Christians, but in order to become Christians, they have to become Jews first. So these believers come up and they say, well, here's how we're going to navigate the culture wars. We're going to say, you compromise and we're not going to, period. You know, my compromise is you do what I want. That's this group of people raising up. And so what happens is there's this conflict understandably and they call this council the elders the apostles get together and they have a discussion about it and then Peter argues with this group of people Paul and Barnabas argue with this group of people and then James argues with this group of people and then finally the group of people concede and say fine we won't make them get circumcised so then they write a letter and send it to the Gentiles saying you don't need to be circumcised and they rejoice for obvious reasons and then at the end uh that's kind of all gets together. So this is kind of the passage we see is there's people saying you need to be circumcised to become a Christian. Then there's these arguments back and forth. And then they arrive at, no, you don't need to be circumcised to be a Christian. And everybody's happy. So here's what we're going to see. I'm going to pick out a couple of key points from this text. And I want us to kind of see and sense the big idea of what God's doing here in this passage. So the big idea is this, is that the gospel makes us devoted to God. It frees us from legalism and it enables us to love. So the gospel changes us from the inside out. It also removes from us this need to obey the law in order to be saved, and it enables us to love our neighbors and through a variety of different cultural concessions. And so let me pray for us, and we're gonna jump into this passage and see how the Jews and Greeks get along. Father, thank you for the luxury and the freedom of being able to be here this morning both the financial freedom to not have to be working right now for all of us, the uh, family freedom, the uh, political freedom, all these things that have enabled us to be here. I thank you for the good work of biblical scholars and the people who write good commentaries and study Bibles who helped me this week wrap my mind around this passage. And I pray that uh, all of us can see your story with more beauty and recognize the cost of your love towards us and make us prepared to uh, love our neighbors in ways that are costly to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So one of the things that I hear all the time in, uh, from non-Christians and even some Christians is, you know, these Christians just pick and choose which verses to believe. They pick and choose which verse in the Old Testament they want to obey. They just kind of go playing fast and loose with we like that one, we don't like that one. And when you ask them, how come you don't follow these ones, but you follow these ones, they just kind of say, well, Jesus. And it's kind of like not the most convincing argument. And so one of the things that happens here in um, Acts 15 is there's this whole discussion going on uh, and they're saying, should the Gentiles be circumcised? And for most of us who are raised in the 21st century, you go, That's a dumb question. I already know the answer to this question. Why are they arguing about it? But if we really put our minds in the place of these first century Jews, they're going, God told us to be circumcised thousands of years ago. Is he just now going to say, never mind? And the first time I read Peter's response, so look with me in verses 8 and 9 in Acts 15, Acts 15, verse 8 and 9. So they're having this big discussion, should the Gentiles be circumcised? And Peter responds with this, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And so the first time I read that, I thought, Peter, you're off topic. (laughs) That's not what we're talking about. (laughs) We're not saying, do the Gentiles get the Holy Spirit? Do the Gentiles get their hearts cleansed by faith? 
we've kind of known that the answer is yes. But what he's saying is somehow in Peter's mind, there's a connection between should they be circumcised and the Holy Spirit cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, Peter has a lot of background here that we don't have. And so here's what we're going to do is the next couple minutes are going to be some nitty-gritty Bible teaching time. And you're going to hear more about circumcision than you ever thought you wanted to know. All right? So if you're like me, which none of you are, you spent a lot of time thinking about circumcision this week. And you guys need to know what I know because I don't want to know it all by myself. So um, a a lot of this is, so there's going to be, there's a a case I'm going to build here. And I hope that you can recognize this, that we want to understand Peter's train of thought. Why does the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles mean they don't have to be circumcised? Because in my first mind at first, that, that's a non sequitur that doesn't really compute. But also I want us to kind of also kind of have this sense where we can know how to interpret the Old Testament in a way that when people say, like, you Christians just pick and choose Bible verses, I want us to help us people understand why some of the verses we're obligated to keep and some of the verses we're not any longer. All right? So this is going to be both apologetic and understanding what Peter's doing here, and we're going to get real nitty-gritty on circumcision. So um, first understanding that before God called Abraham, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it was all good, Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned and sin stained all that exists. And so as the people spread out over the world, there is brokenness all over the place. And so God calls the people to himself out of the ancient Near Eastern context um, and he calls them Israel and he says, I want all my people to be circumcised. So here's a key point here, is that circumcision existed before Abraham. I used to kind of always read the Old Testament and think like, God, you could have picked anything else, and that would have been okay with everybody. But you picked circumcision. So God picked it, and I remember thinking, like, why did he do that? But here's why he did that. So in the Egyptian ancient Near Eastern context, all the people who are members of the king's household and the priests in the, in the pagan cult were circumcised. So there's this select few of people who are members of the king's household, members of the emperor's household, and the people who were part of the priestly pagan cult that were um, circumcised to point out the fact that they had special kingly status, they were associated with the king, and also that they could mediate between God and the people. So first thing we see here right off the bat is that when God calls Abraham and he says, circumcise all the males, it was this radical countercultural thing. That in the ancient Near East, in all those different places, there are people in the king's household, there were the religious leaders, and then there was everybody else, these second-tier citizens. But even in the very beginning, when God calls Abraham, he says, there are not degrees of persons, there are persons. There are not hierarchies of people, there are people. That all the men in my household are members of the king's household. That we are to be a kingdom of priests. That all of God's people were not seen in terms of their hierarchy, but they were seen in terms of their dignity. So right off the bat, we see this move in the Old Testament away from the special select few who had special status with God, away from that into all the men in my household will be a kingdom of priests. So from Abraham's perspective, when God comes in and says, hey, Abraham, I need you to circumcise all the guys, they wouldn't have heard that as, um, excuse me, plastic surgery is not invented yet. That sounds terrible. Why are we doing this? What a primitive, terrible thing. You're so whatever. They would have received that as, you mean to tell me that we are all members of the king's household and that we are all priests in God's kingdom? And God would have said, 
Yes. So right off the bat, when God calls his people, he's elevating the dignity and status of all of his people, saying there are not two statuses, there is one status, and it's child of God. It's like thousands of thousands of years later, somehow we as people still keep trying to create hierarchies of people. There's pastors, there's elders, there's deacons, there's these different levels. Not saying that God doesn't give us different roles and different functions within the body, but there is no way that we could derive a conclusion from the Bible that says any of you have any of a closer or farther direct access line to God than I do. We're all all the same. So first thing, circumcision would have been received as good news, not this painful, terrible thing that's like, well, this is going to make for a bad couple weeks. So what happens then is within the covenant, there's this physical, external sign that these people are being devoted to the service of God. So if you are circumcised, you are set apart saying you are devoted to the service of the God. So this is this, this outward mark of devotion. However, what happens is so much of what goes on here has to do with the fact that they, even though they receive this beautiful mark that they're to be these devoted people to God, they still persist in their hard-heartedness and disobedience. So the physical mark doesn't change. The external adorning does not change the fact that their heart is still broken. So what happens is even within the Old Testament, the early books of the Old Testament, God is pointing past and beyond the physical circumcision to this true and better circumcision. He says the real problem is you need to circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So you might have the external stuff but internally, you're still hard-hearted. You're still a sinner. And so right in the very beginning, circumcision was seen as this physical sign that was meant to point to a future and greater uh, reality. This type of way of solving things is a problem that we all can empathize with and deal with. This view that if I change something outside of me, that will change what's going on inside of me. Jen Wilkin is this great author, our uh, Redemption Women's, studying a book by her in this fall. She says this, the beauty industry feeds us the tantalizing lie that if we fix the outside, we'll fix the inside. You could replace beauty industry with fitness industry, with car sales industry, with home builders industry, whatever it is, not that these industries are all inherently bad, but they're all saying that once you have this going on, once your circumstances change, once this and looks and feels differently, then internally you can feel okay about yourself. Once you pay off your house, once you get that new house with the extra bedroom, once you get that new car, once you lose this body fat percentage, once you get this particular makeup, that all these things, these are going to help you, con- like the emptiness and void we have on the inside, we're all constantly trying to flinch and, med- and medicate that with things on the outside. And a lot of times it happens at church. A lot of people, my guess is that are even here right now on Sunday morning, you're here because internally there's a void, there's a gap, there's a sense of uncleanliness, and you're here to try and get rid of that. There might be a sense, just a a deeper sense of sadness that won't go away, a sense of loneliness, a sense of God doesn't love me, and you're here trying to build a case for why you're acceptable to God from the outside in. But so much of the Gentiles and so much of what happened to the Jews was they were content with the external and they got stuck. And so what happens is this, they're trying to let the outside change their inside and God's saying the problem has always been on the inside. The problem has always been your hard heart. It's not been something else. 
It's not your circumstances. It's not what you're wearing. It's not what you're not wearing. It's not your physical body. It's your heart that is rebellious against God. And so what happens as Deuteronomy progresses, God ends up saying this to the people. Listen, look. If one of you keeps my covenant, if one of you obeys, if even one of you can get past this hard-hearted thing, I'll do a great work. It says, and the Lord your God. So he's saying, I myself, I will circumcise your heart. Since you can't do it on your own, this is very metaphorical here, by the way, in case that's not clear. I will circumcise your heart. I will reach into the pit of your chest and change your heart from having this mark of undevotion to this mark of devotion. And the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And so he's saying, if one of you will just obey, we can move past this dumb sign of the physical thing and move on to the reality, the real thing, that I'm going to make you devoted to God, not just physically, but in the heart. And so the prophets pick up on this motif and this theme and they say, um, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So contained within the Old Testament, if we read the Old Testament rightly, there's already this vision and this future of the physical circumcision is gonna go away and this internal circumcision of the heart is going to come and that's going to take place after someone faithfully keeps the covenant and the Holy Spirit falls to give them the new heart. Right? So that's why what Peter says here is an answer to what they're dealing with. Should we circumcise the Gentiles or not? Peter says the Holy Spirit has fallen on them and he cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter is saying that thing we've been waiting for, it already happened and they got to skip the middle step and jump right to the finish line. So let's not go backwards. This is kind of like this sign pointing to the future, true and greater sign. Like we have this beautiful sign next door in the empty dirt lot that says future home redemption gateway. Now imagine with me, like that was a big deal. That was exciting to put that sign up. We bought the land, we stuck the sign in there. It's kind of full in here. We can kind of see that sign and every time we see that sign, it's a reminder of like future hope that we're gonna have a bigger building and not gonna have to sit so close to each other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you can imagine if in a year and a half when we're getting ready to move into this building, there rose up the sign party who said, we should keep the sign up because that sign was really important to us. And there's like this church division and some people are like, there's the people who are for keeping up the sign, people who are against keeping up the sign and then Luke Simmons is up here just pulling his hair out like what's happening to my church, you guys are all crazy. Like the sign was meant to go away. The sign wasn't meant to stay there. It was meant to point forward to the future building. So this sign that we see here, um, Paul picks this up. So. What, what was happening here when we look at this is God is saying you used to be devoted externally, now I am making you devoted from the heart by my spirit. And Paul picks this up in a variety of different places in the New Testament. And so now when you hear the word circumcision, you're gonna know what's going on. Colossians 2.1 says, in him you also, now he's speaking to the church, the people of God who follow Jesus. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So this heart change has happened. If you have decided to follow Jesus, if you turn to him in faith and repentance, you've received the Holy Spirit and God has circumcised your heart, this true and greater reality. In Philippians 3, 2 through 3, um, Paul is not mincing words and he's fired up about this. Look out for the dogs. 
Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Mutilate flesh, you could translate that amateur plastic surgeons, those who just have a knife and are eager to use it. Watch out for him. He's talking about these people in Acts. Look out for these people who are trying to get you to continue to follow the old way because we, the church, are the true circumcision. The true and greater sign has been pointing to the fact that the Spirit was going to make us devoted to God from the inside out. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So we, the church, we are the circumcision. The Jews who are circumcised externally, that was pointing to a future reality of the Spirit making God's people devoted to God from the heart. So those of you who are Christians, God has made you devoted to him from the inside out, from the heart out. It's not a matter of these external shows of devotion, but it's rather these affections from the center of our very being. What are some of the things that are in your life right now that are competing for that devotion, that are competing for that affection? This week as I was preparing for this, I was praying, God, I believe you have made me devoted to God, to, to yourself, that you have given me a new heart, that you had to circumcise my heart. I couldn't do it on my own. But nonetheless, I still have these competing devotions. And this week in particular, I was noticing how I was really slow to be generous and really quick to try and flinch towards miserliness because a lot of my devotion has been to security through the sake of some arbitrary number in the bank account. Once I get there, then I can start being generous because that number, that's my security blanket. And so I want to step back as a Christian and think through, okay, so I'm noticing that I'm tempted to be devoted to something ahead of God. And I have to think and pause and pray and reflect on the fact that the only reason I'm even able to be a Christian is because Jesus was perfectly devoted and submissive to the will of the Father on my behalf. And when I see God's love for me, that he has sent his spirit, that he is the one who has changed and is changing my heart, and so I am now enabled to be devoted to him in a way that I wasn't previously, then my affections for him grow and I see myself becoming increasingly devoted to him from the inside out. What are some of the things in your life that are devoting, that you're devoting yourself to and putting ahead of Christ, ahead of God? Because a chief function of the Spirit falling and the Spirit having a presence in your life is to make you devoted to God from the inside out. So Peter's response here isn't off topic. It makes sense. Peter's saying, if you guys would have just read the Old Testament thoroughly, you would have noticed that the Spirit falling is the fulfillment of that sign. All right. Close the book on circumcision, all right? Now we're moving on. We're done with circumcision. Everybody's relieved. No more talking about circumcision. All right. The next thing the gospel does, after the gospel makes us devoted to God, the gospel frees us from legalism. So here's how I want to define legalism. Legalism is Jesus plus something equals salvation. So this word salvation we see in Acts 15 verse 1. You can look there with me. Some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So that word saved would have had probably two significant implications in their life. 
One is political and one is spiritual. So the political ramification of the word saved, a lot of the uh, Caesars and the emperors called themselves saviors. They saw themselves as these deliverers, the ones who are gonna take people away from the present regime and deliver them into the new political era. So a new Caesar would come on the scene and he'd say, I am savior and I am Lord and you have been under a bad Caesar and I'm gonna take you away and put you under a good Caesar who is me. And so when Jesus says, I am savior, he's saying there is a political ramification for that. You have been living under this reign of this tyrannical king and his name is probably you. I'm gonna deliver you from the bad reign and the bad lordship of yourself and bring you under the good reign and the good lordship of me. That he's a better king than we'll ever be. Also, it would have been understood as, as uh, spiritual, that, God, that he's delivering us from the punishment that our sins deserve. So it's both, how do I become a part of this thing this new king is doing, but it's also, how do I receive God's forgiveness? Salvation would have been understood as both of those things. And so, how do you become saved? In their teaching, you have to become a Jew before you become a Christian. So there's this hoop you have to jump through before you become a Christian. And so they teach that you must do something, you must keep the law in order to be saved. So the most basic definition definition of legalism is that Jesus plus something equals salvation. I remember the first time when this really clicked for me. I was on a mission trip in Mexico and I was like 15 or 16 uh, and there's a guy named Tim Melberg who's a part of our church now and he was there as a volunteer leader. He was in college or just out of college and we were painting the side of a house together or something like that and I remember asking him like how do you know like which churches are trustworthy and good versus which churches aren't? How do you kind of decide between like, are we on their team, are we on their team? How do you kind of filter through that? And he said, here's the best way to think through this. False churches will always teach Jesus plus something equals salvation. True churches will always teach this, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And that just burned into my mind as a really helpful short summary that legalism is the belief that I have to keep the law, I have to do something, so it's Jesus plus me equals my salvation, whereas the gospel in the Bible teaches that Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. So enter into me with this scene. So in Acts 15, you see these people rising up and they're false teachers and Paul and Barnabas is there. So we saw Paul earlier. He's not one to mince words. He's saying these mutilators of the flesh, these evildoers. So Paul's arguing with them. Paul's a persuasive dude and he's trying to argue with them. No, 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 these people aren't getting it. So Paul, just picture Paul getting really frustrated with these people who are legalists. So these are Christians who are legalists. So if we think that we're immune from becoming legalists because we're Christians, we're deceived. These are believers, the book of Acts calls them, who are drifting and falling into legalism. Paul can't convince them. It's not working. So then what happens is they call a meeting together to consider this matter. And you can imagine Peter, who's been doing ministry to these Gentiles for a dozen plus years, just thinking, why are we having some stupid committee meeting why we don't need to talk about this. It's already like we've been, like, have, read the last couple chapters, it's obvious. We don't need to talk about this. And I just picture Paul and Peter getting really frustrated. It says, so verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Then after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. And so remember, this is Peter. Peter is a, a hard flincher. He's the guy who kind of on a whim cut off that guy's ear and just kind of went crazy. Right? And Jesus had to tell him, you need to tone it down, 
dial it back. But you kind of imagine Peter here, hearing all these people arguing about, should people have to add to the work of Christ or not? And he's just pulling his hair out like, you're all crazy! After much debate, Peter stands up and says, brothers, you're missing the point. You're missing the mark. This legalism you're teaching is demonic because it says the gospel of Jesus is not sufficient for salvation. Knock it off. And then it says here in verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. One of the biggest miracles in the whole church (laughs) is that the religious leaders fall silent and have nothing to say. And they listened. So Paul stands up. He throws himself out there. He says, you're all crazy. And then James replies in verse 13. After they finish speaking, James replies. So James here hadn't experienced what Peter and Paul had experienced. James has been in Jerusalem this whole time. So Peter and Paul are running around having all these fun cross-cultural experiences and James is stuck with all these legalists in Jerusalem kind of being like, oh my gosh, all these Jews are driving me crazy. James is a Jew, so he kind of gets it. But he goes, brothers, listen to me. So Peter and Paul um, share from their experience what God has done, the Holy Spirit's fallen. And here's kind of a good lesson for us here is James speaks and he quotes the scriptures and the scriptures are what close the debate that they share from experience, they talk about what the Spirit's doing, they discern as much as they can, but it's when James quotes the scriptures, look at how the prophets spoke to a time when the Greeks would be included, that the debate's done. The scriptures have spoken, we're done talking about this. This picture of legalism here is such a big deal. Imagine if I racked up $10 billion in debt. Imagine that. Think through it, yeah. I don't make that much money. That's going to take me like 19 lifetimes to pay off or more. I don't really know. I haven't done the math. $10 billion is a lot. And then imagine this benefactor comes to me and says, Seth, I'm going to pay off your debt. And he goes, here's $10 billion. And I say, wow, thank you. I had no idea. And so I take this $10 billion and I take the 40 cents out of my pocket and I go to the bank and say, "Um, this benefactor and I would like to pay off my debt. We did it together. Because I so badly want to feel like I contributed that I'm going to add my useless change on top even though it's already paid in full. And so what that does is when I add my 40 cents to that $10 billion, it doesn't just make me look stupid. It actually takes away from the gift. Now I'm saying, yeah, we did it together, me and him. We're a team. Me and team 10 billionaire. We did it together, us. You can do it too. If you partner with him, he'll, do it. he'll help you out. If you, if you do it, you guys can do it together too because I want to be able to tell people that we did it, I did it, I helped, I contributed. But you see that adding to the final payment of Jesus on our behalf takes away from it and diminishes his gift. It takes away from his glory, it takes away from its efficacy, and it makes us the centerpiece of the story when we're meant to be just the ones receiving the gift. So legalism is demonic and Jesus sets it free from us and he says the work of Christ on our behalf is final, it is sufficient. If you add to it, you actually take away from it. I don't know a lot of Christians who would say that uh, they think that I earned part of my place in going to heaven. I don't know many who would say that. But all of us, because of our uh, 
us being these spiritual plagiarists who want to take credit for God's doing, we have these little flinches that we want to be able to say, if I'm feeling bad, here's these things I do to make me feel right with God. Imagine yourself right now, if you committed some heinous sin tomorrow morning, or some medium sin, or whatever it is, what would your first flinch be to do to like get right, to get past it, to move on? Would it be, man, I need to read the Psalms. I hate reading the Psalms, but I'm going to do it because it's kind of like punishing myself for what I did. Is it, man, I need to call the pastor because that guy, he's whatever and he'll, he'll tell me what to do and whatever it is. Is it, man, I just need to double my check next week at church. What are the, what is, what's your go-to? Is it, man, I'm going to make the bed for my wife because, you know, this is going to help make up for the things that I, whatever. But a key thing here is that a mark of spiritual maturity, a way that you know you're growing in maturity, is that the gap between when you commit sin and when you fall on your knees and thank God for the cross shrinks. The smaller that gap is, I think that's an indicator of spiritual maturity. That when you sin, when you fall, when you rebel, the quicker we run to thank the Lord for his cross and his grace because you've already been made right with God. The gospel makes us devoted to God from the heart, it frees us from legalism, and it enables us to love. Read with me um, around verse 19, Acts 15, verse 19. So we're not gonna make them get circumcised. They're gonna skip out on that. Uh, But there is gonna be something we're gonna ask them to do. Remember we talked at the beginning, those two cultures coming together, there will necessarily be compromises. So what are we going to do for the sake of unity? Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. The NIV says we should not make it difficult for them to turn to God. We shouldn't put things in their way. We shouldn't make hoops for them to jump through. We should not make it difficult for them to turn to God, verse 20. But should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, one, sexual morality, two, what has been strangled, three, and from blood, four. Some of you who are drinking blood are like, crap. <laughs> so there's, there's four things here, but I want to see them in two different categories. So the first one, there are these dietary, cultural things. So look at verse 21. So this is the why, the grounding principle behind this. For, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. So what's happening is James is saying, here's what we should do. Instead of making them get circumcised, we want them to come together. We're not going to make that happen. But we should, at the same time, help the Gentiles be sensitive to the Jewish culture. And one of the main things that marks unity and fellowship is the table. It's the, it's the, the shared meal. And so these Jews have for thousands of years had a culture where they abstained from these three types of things. Food polluted to idols, food that was strangled, and from food that still had blood in it. And what they're saying is, you guys are going to have to give up some of your dietary preferences for the sake of sharing a table with these Jews. It's important that you do this. So those three things were very much culturally located for here and now. The grounding principle for Every city has had people who listen to Moses. So as long as you're in the presence of Orthodox Jews, I do believe that we as Christians are called to abstain from the types of foods that they feel called to abstain from. If you are um, trying to love your Muslim neighbor, do not invite them over for bacon. That's not, one, it's just insulting. 
You know they don't eat bacon. Two, it's not effective, and you're not, it's just not a good move. It's not a deal. So if you're next to Orthodox Jews, don't invite them over to do a bunch of things that Jews don't do. So that's kind of a main point there. The fourth one, sexual morality, is more a matter of emphasis. It's not really a matter of being careful with the Jews, but it's a matter of the Greek culture was so perverted, it makes our culture look like Puritanism. That every single one of the New Testament authors, without exception, are involved in condemning sexual immorality. And it's such a problem for them, it was so radically countercultural that they had to emphasize it all the time. And so here's what that word sexual immorality means. The word behind it is porneia, from where we get to our word pornography. It means all sexual activity between two unmarried persons. All sexual activity between two unmarried persons is what this word sexual immorality means. So notice here that there is this ethic that's given to the Gentiles. Yes, you don't earn your way into status with God. Legalism is saying, I must do these things to be saved. However, there still is this idea here that once you are saved, in order to be a faithful witness to the Jews, and in order to be a people devoted to God from the heart, there are moral principles we are called to follow. One of my professors used to say, when you get adopted into God's family, you don't earn your way in, but once you're in, there are chores. (laughs) And to some degree, being a part of the household of God means that there is moral commandments. And I hear this a lot, Um, I've heard it from some people here, some people elsewhere, that throw the word legalism at any moral command. Thou shalt not murder. Well, don't want to be legalistic. (laughs) Thou shalt not steal. On your taxes, don't want to be legalistic. So this moral law that God gives us is not a means of earning our salvation, but it is a means of pleasing God and being a faithful witness to the people all around us. And so, even though the Gentiles are told, you don't need to become Jews now, they are told, but you do need to honor the lordship of God and love your neighbors by giving up some of your preferences. So Paul Tripp is a, this definition of love is one we've thrown around a bunch of times, we'll keep throwing around, so if you wanna know what love is, we're gonna keep quoting this one love quote from Paul Tripp, comes from his marriage book. He says, love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. So when I say the gospel frees us to love, what I see here is that these Gentiles get this word that says, hey, you're gonna have to change what you eat and your sexual practices, and they go, sweet, If this is going to help me love my Jewish neighbor, I'm in. Read with me uh, in verse 30, 30. (laughs) Acts 15, 30. So this is what happens when they receive this letter. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. So picture in your mind a whole bunch of Gentile guys who are kind of waiting, to, and they're going to come back either... When they come back, we're going into surgery, (laughs) or when they come back, we're going to have a party. There's like two outcomes. It's like all the way up, all the way down. So they're waiting, they're praying. I pray we don't have to do this circumcision thing, because that would just be a bummer. And then verse 31, and when they had read the letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. What could they have done? Well, of course, we shouldn't get circumcised. And who do they think they are telling us what we can and can't eat? 
but rather, because it means being unified, they're excited to give up their cultural practices for the sake of being one holy family of God. A lot of times we think about freedom in terms of what we're free from. We're free from keeping the law as a means of salvation. That's true. But one of the things James K.A. Smith, uh, a guy I really like, he's a philosopher, he says, we are a culture obsessed with the freedom from that has altogether forgotten the freedom to. And navigating both those tensions is very important. Some of us here in this room really get, like really struggle with this freedom from thing. You constantly feel this pressure to measure up morally in order for God to love you. I have to keep doing the right things. I have to add to what God has done. I have to do the right thing. And I want you to hear loud and clear that you are free from having to earn God's favor. However, some of us in this room have dismissed and minimized the other side. Freedom too that we previously were in bondage to self-service and we did not have the freedom to serve God until God gave us a new heart. We once were in bondage to our slavery and doing exactly what our sinful desires wanted, but we now have the freedom to put off the old and put on the new and to with costly sacrifice love our neighbor. And I want you to hear, those of you who go about saying I'll do whatever I want, that you are called by the Lord to use your freedom not to serve your flesh, but to do something else. I saw the movie The Shack last weekend. I'm not going to comment on the whole thing, but there's one part that I just really hated that I just wanted to share with you. Um, it's when the guy like first meets Jesus, and he's like, well, Jesus, now that I'm following you, what should I do? And the Jesus character turns to him and says, you can do whatever you want. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Read any page in the Bible, and you know that's not what's going on there. You know, that's not the deal. Freedom to. We have this freedom to serve others. Peter says this, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as living servants of God. So we are now free to serve God, whereas previously we served ourselves as God. Likewise, Paul says this in Galatians 5, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So our freedom is meant to enable us to love and serve God and enable us to love and serve neighbor. So the gospel makes us devoted to God, frees us from legalism, and enables us to love. So notice here this love of neighbor thing. The way that this flushes out in this passage has everything to do with culture. What part of culture is to be preserved? What part of culture is to be thrown off? Kind of going back to that marriage analogy. What's this thing that this is who I am, I'm not going to compromise on it, and it's pretty solid. And what's the stuff that we're going to say, let's compromise. Let's play fast and loose with this. Because Paul is vigilant and angry and driven and motivated and sharp and cunning to defend that you cannot add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are saved by salvation. No, that's redundant. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. You cannot add to the cross. If you try and add to it, you're taking away from it. 
We're not compromising on that. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, and the only way you have access to him is by the substitutionary death of Jesus and his victorious resurrection from the grave. Die on that hill. Paul dies on it. All the apostles minus one die on it. However, there's this cultural thing. What we eat, what we wear, what we drink, where we live, how we go about our lives, that the apostles here are quick to throw off and say we should not be conservative in the sense that we should not try and hold on to our cultural values if any way those get in the way of our mission. This is not meant to be a left versus right political discussion, but my point is this. Christians should be the first people to throw off their cultural values if it means reaching more people for Jesus. That the first thing to go should be our values as a culture that get in the way of people meeting and following Jesus. Circumcision, don't do it anymore. There's a true and greater thing. Food laws, whatever. I won't eat what I want to eat anymore because I want these people to know Jesus. Have we thought well about this? Because in this sense that when the kingdom of God comes to earth, the culture changes and moves forward. It does not stay the same. Have you thought through which of the values you have that are cultural that you're holding on to with more devotion than you're holding on to them than you're holding on to Christ? Because, I mean, being a conservative, conservative rainforests, fiscal conservatism, whatever that is, that stuff's, I'm not talking about that. My point is this. Are you holding on to things culturally that are getting in the way of you being an effective participant in God's mission? If so, dump them. A lot of you are doing that already. You come and hear our kind of rock band concert thing and you go, I wish it was jazz, but that's just me, you know. But I'm in a diet of my preferences for the sake of us being a faithful church and I'm us incarnating and being a part of these people. Um, you might go, you know, I wish there was more dance music, EDM, but whatever, that's what the people need. I'll, I'll, I'll put a back seat to my preferences. So a whole much of this is our culture values, our culture presences. We need to be clear that we are not going to compromise biblical doctrine or the gospel of Jesus Christ, but everything else, all our cultural expression of it, we need to be ready to let go of for the sake of engaging in God's mission. What about your household? What about you as an individual? What about us as a church? We need to stand firm on this and play fast and loose with this, and that's what's modeled for us here in Acts 15 is that we should take on the culture as much as possible insofar as it doesn't compromise our biblical faithfulness and our call to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray, and we're going to continue. God, thanks for being good to us. God, thank you for your grace to me that even when I, as a Christian, uh, lack devotion, you are changing my heart bit by bit. I pray that we can be thankful for the fact that we have this true and greater circumcision that you have made, given us a new heart, and I pray that we as a people can be discerning and wise as we try and navigate between being uncompromising on the gospel, but extremely flexible as it relates to uh, our cultural practices and values. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Seth.